Today, of course, is uh, Valentine's Day, February the 14th, Valentine's Day today. So I wonder how romantic you are in Fitzroy. Who got a Valentine's card today? Okay, okay, a few people got a Valentine's card. Who sent a Valentine's card? Okay, okay, uh, about, the, about the same. I'll not ask who sent more than one, actually. Actually, the most romantic story, though, in Fitzroy is one of the husbands of the India team came to me about 10 days ago. And uh, he had a Valentine's card all organised 10 days ago. And it was covered with, you know, loving rhymes and sealed with a loving kiss and all the rest of it. And he was very anxious that this should be taken all the way to India to make sure it reached his wife. Now, isn't that romantic? That's a romantic story, Nigel, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe, our, uh, maybe this is appropriate uh, this morning because Valentine was a Christian leader who was martyred around 270 by the Emperor Claudius II. He was arrested and imprisoned after he was found marrying Christian couples and, and otherwise helping them at a time of persecution. He made the mistake then of trying to convert the emperor himself and he was condemned to death. He was subsequently beaten, stoned, and beheaded outside the Flaminian Gate. Now, that's not a story you find in most Valentine's Day cards. But maybe it's appropriate today, because this week and next, we're going to consider Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, this might conceivably be the most ambitious series of exposition, Bible expositions ever undertaken. Romans in two weeks. Romans is is Paul's most lengthy letter, 16 chapters, and it's probably his most complex as well, with lengthy discussions on topics that sometimes can seem pretty obscure to most modern readers. Having said that, this letter of his, written around uh, the middle of the first century to the Christian house churches in Rome, is actually a pretty stunning piece of writing. And it more than repays careful reading and study. Think think of the verses that Philip so wonderfully read for us earlier on. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can separate us from the love of God? It's wonderful, stirring stuff. It's writing, it's theology to wake you up in the morning, put a smile on your face, and propel you out into the world to try and change it. Now, as a matter of interest, how many people this morning have read some of Romans all or maybe part of Romans, let's say up to a chapter, let's say a few verses within the last three months. That's very good. Uh, Keep your hands up. Within the last six months. Within the last year. All right, well, I must say I'm I'm very impressed. Now, that's... uh, that's, uh, that's, that's fantastic. I have uh, uh, a room full of uh, Romans scholars this morning, so, um, so excellent. <clears throat> Romans is a, is a wonderful piece of writing that, that says an awful lot about God, about the human predicament, about what being God's people means, and about God's purposes for the world. And so it's a very exciting letter that has the potential to really inspire us and help us discover more of what God is doing in the world. But how to tackle Romans in two weeks? Well, we're going to have a look at two stories that unfold for us in Romans. Firstly, the story of God, and then the story of God's people, us. And we're going to see what these might have to say to us. We'll only scratch the surface, of course. But maybe if I do half a job here, 
uh, we'll be inspired to go back to Romans and read it a bit more. And maybe with the assistance of one or two recent books, let me recommend this one to you by Tom Wright, uh, Romans for Everyone. This is a a little commentary, but don't be put off by that. It's a commentary. It's not like any other commentaries you've read. It really is for everybody, and and you'll get a lot out of this. Uh, That and uh, one or two other recommendations you can find on the Fitzroy website. Uh, So uh, check that out. Christians that Paul wrote to in Rome were a small group of ordinary people struggling like everybody else in the city just to survive. They met in people's homes and apartments, tenement buildings. There were maybe five or seven groups that he wrote to. Uh, And you can read about some of the leaders of those groups, uh, both women and men, in chapter 16. Paul had never visited Rome. He hadn't founded the church there, but he tells us he was very keen to go and see them. After all, he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and most of the Christians there were from a pagan background, so Paul probably felt that they should be connected. Plus, he had big plans for the future, actually. He he planned a major mission uh, campaign into the west of the empire, into Spain, for which Rome would be the base. And if that was to be the case, Paul knew that he was going to need a strong and united church. There was a problem, though. Like almost everywhere else at this time, Christians were struggling over the question of how Gentiles fitted into the family of God. And there were tensions between Christians from a Jewish background and those from a pagan background. Some Jewish Christians felt that if you were going to follow this Jewish Messiah Jesus, you effectively had to become Jewish and keep the Jewish law. All the, all the Jewish stuff that you find in the first five books of the Old Testament. Paul, though, championed the view that the only thing required to be part of God's family was to follow Christ, to believe, to trust and obey him, and that Jewish law was no longer necessary. So that's why we get so much reference to Jews and Gentiles and Jewish law in Paul's letters. It was the big issue of the day for the first Christians, and Paul gives his views quite forthrightly in most of his letters. The problem, though, for Paul is that by saying that salvation... And inclusion in God's family revolved around the death and resurrection of Jesus. By saying that, it effectively called into question the faithfulness of God. You see, by sidelining the necessity of the Jewish law for God's people, Paul raised the question of, well, hang on, Paul, what was God doing in the past? Has he abandoned the promises and the covenant that he made with Israel? When plan A didn't work, did God just scrap it and try something different? Is God then capricious? Is he unfaithful? And this was a very real problem for Paul and the other Jews and and for Gentiles as well. Because if God has been unfaithful in the past and has simply decided to do something entirely new, then how can we trust him in the future? And largely this is the overriding backdrop to Paul's letter to the Romans. It's essentially what we call a theodicy. Now, you may not be familiar with that word, but what it simply means is a defense of God in the face of accusations of injustice. A theodicy. It's not unusual in the Jewish scriptures, actually, looking back in the Old Testament, when the Jewish people found themselves in exile in Babylon, and they'd lost their temple and their land, and they asked themselves, what just happened? Was God, has God been unfaithful? And the answer they gave, we can find in the history that they wrote in Samuel and Kings, 
which shows that, no, it wasn't God's fault that this disaster happened. It was our fault. We were the ones who were unfaithful. And so Paul's letter to the Romans is a theodicy at heart. Paul's at pains to defend God's faithfulness. Despite all appearances, God has indeed been faithful to his word, to the scriptures, to his people. Surprising though it may seem, God's promises to his ancient people have been fulfilled through the Messiah, Jesus. And that's why there's so many scripture references actually in Romans. Paul wants to make it clear that God has been faithful. Romans in many ways is Paul's reading of the Jewish scriptures, which he maintains point to God's faithfulness in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Excuse me. So for Paul, what God's doing in the world through Jesus was not something that was out of step with his promises to ancient Israel. And fundamentally, Paul says in chapter 4 that this promise was the promise to Abraham to bless all the nations in the world through Israel. It was God's plan from the beginning to undo the evil in the world through his relationship with the people that he had called. And if we were to follow the argument through Romans, Paul keeps on insisting that God has not abandoned the salvation project that he initiated through Israel. And he cannot be said to be unfaithful to his promises. It's not God that's at fault. It's actually not even the law that he gave to Israel that's a problem. The problem is with Israel herself and her unfaithfulness. So in chapter 2, he shows how Israel has broken God's law and has not lived up to her commission to be a light to the Gentiles. In chapter 3, he shows how Jews, just as much as Gentiles, are guilty before God. And in chapter 7, he shows how, despite having the gift of the law, Israel has become sold under sin. So Israel, sadly, has become unfaithful, but God has remained faithful. His salvation purposes have not been thwarted. Despite his people's unfaithfulness, God has found a way, perhaps a rather surprising way, of being faithful to his promises. And that was through the one who was found to be the completely faithful Israelite, the Messiah Jesus. In 321, Paul says that God's righteousness or his faithfulness was manifested not through the Jewish law, but through the death and resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus. And actually, says Paul, the Jewish scriptures themselves attest to this. God's good news, he says in chapter 1, was promised beforehand by the Jewish prophets and revolves around Jesus. This is the means through this faithful Israelite Jesus that God brings redemption and salvation to the world and thus keeps his ancient promises. And so Paul argues in great detail and depth for God's faithfulness. Israel's scriptures proclaim again and again, we only have to read the Psalms, that God is utterly faithful. His people may be faithless, but God is faithful. And the coming of Jesus shows God's faithfulness in the most fulsome way. And so we come to our passage in Romans 8. By this stage in his letter, Paul has dealt quite comprehensively with this theme of God's faithfulness. In chapters 9 to 11, he's going to go on to to deal with a question that that is begged. Well, Paul, that's all very well, saying that God's faithfulness has been shown in Jesus. But what about Israel? They haven't responded to this message. How does that work? And he deals with that question. But before he does that, his thoughts about what God has done in the world come to a sort of a climax at the end of 
chapter 8 in this passage that we have focused on this morning. The language may seem maybe a bit overblown to us, but you know, it wasn't to the people that he wrote to. Paul is actually bringing this theme of God's faithfulness right down to earth, right down to the practical circumstances of the Christians in Rome. Life in the cities of the Roman Empire was hard for most people. Unless you were one of the sort of one or two percent of the the ruling class, life was a struggle. In Rome, people lived in large flats, in uh, big apartment blocks, in crowded, dirty, unsanitary conditions. Think about the big cities of the third world and the, the slum conditions there. That was what Rome was like for most people. Disease and sickness were rampant. One in five people were slaves, abused physically and sexually by their masters. Death was ever-present. Life was just hard, and the Christians who gathered in these little house groups were no different than the rest of the population of Rome. Paul's letter would have been heard by a group of people which included slaves, homeless people, people working desperately hard just to make it, and everybody really hard-pressed. That was the condition of the very first Christians who heard Paul's letter. So when Paul refers to tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, these were not just extreme examples that he was making just to make a point. They were actually the everyday experience of the first Christians. In verse 18, he talks about the suffering of this present age. The Christians in in Rome knew what he was talking about. This wasn't sort of airy-fairy, highfalutin language just to make a rhetorical point. He's reaching right down into the gritty, painful lives of the first Christians and saying, this is why all this talk about God's faithfulness actually matters. Because some of you are losing your business because you're following Jesus. Because some of you are being beaten unfairly by your masters. Because some of you have just lost a child to diarrhea. Because some of you are going hungry because you're foreigners in the city and you don't qualify for Caesar's grain dough. Because some of you are exhausted and tired working for a pittance. Because sometimes it just feels like you're being killed all day long. It just feels like you're an animal on the way to being slaughtered in one of the temples. And that's why the faithfulness of God actually matters. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, if the God of Israel has proven himself to be utterly, utterly faithful, if he has not spared his son in proving himself faithful, then no matter what struggle, no matter what difficulty, if this God is for us, then what, what under the sun could be against us? When you think of it like that, says Paul, actually we're, more than conquerors. The Greek word he uses there is actually an unusual one. It means super conquerors. Whatever the world throws against us is not the last word. God gives grace in every circumstance to be a super conqueror. Unless we think Paul knew nothing of the harshness of life of the Romans, we only have to think for a moment of the itinerant life that he led with the imprisonments, the beatings, the shipwrecking and all the rest. He, like the Romans, was, knew that life was hard, and yet he rejoices in the faithfulness of God and feels that in the midst of, it, of all of this, that he and the Romans 
can be super conquerors. There's nothing in your life, says Paul, not the power of the empire, not any angel or spiritual power, not anything in your past, not anything that you can fear in the future, nothing in creation, not even death itself. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. This is the faithful God of Israel. He's committed to you. He loves you completely. He will be faithful to you no matter what. What God has done in Christ demonstrates that completely. And so from Rome in AD 55 to Fitzroy in 2010, probably none of us here this morning have lives as difficult as the Roman believers. We all, however, do face our struggles, financial difficulties, redundancy, ill health, chronic pain, bereavement, worries about our children, relationship problems, problems at work. Sometimes life goes smoothly, other times it gets very rough, and maybe some of us this morning feel overwhelmed by what we're going through, and some of us maybe find it hard to see a way ahead. But God's word comes to us in all of our circumstances this morning, no matter what you are going through, no matter what it is, nothing, nothing can separate you from God's love. He loves you. He gave Jesus for you. He's faithful. He will be with you in every difficult circumstance that you have to face. Nothing can prize you away from God's love. So what does that mean in practice? It means the following. First, no matter what's happening, we remain confident that we are children of God and that he loves us. A favorite singer of mine is Eric Bibb. Eric's a blues singer. He's a Christian. He does a lot of old blues songs and gospel songs. And one of the songs he sings is, Don't let nobody drag your spirit down. First verse goes, You might slip, you might slide, you might tumble and fall by the roadside, but don't you let nobody drag your spirit down. Remember, you're walking up to heaven. Don't let nobody turn you around. A sense of God's love and faithfulness will do that for us. And the choice is up to us. Are we going to go under with our circumstances or are we going to be, are we going to find God's grace to be conquerors? Are we going to trust in God's love and faithfulness and let his joy and peace sustain us or slide into despair? We need to let the reality of these words penetrate deep into our being. If God is for us, who can be against us? Confidence in God's love. Secondly, We put our whole trust in God. Verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And that's a challenge. Not simply to pray and expect God to make everything okay. It's good to pray for good outcomes. It's good to pray that God will deliver us from evil. Jesus taught us to pray like that. Many times God will answer those prayers. But fundamentally, God calls us to trust him. To know that his ways are best, that he knows the end from the beginning and that he will work out all things for good. God is faithful. He's utterly reliable. God wants our highest good. We can trust him for everything and in everything. God cares personally for each one of us. He knows and feels every difficulty of our lives. He cares deeply and intimately. 
And once we have a sense of that, that our lives mean something, that our lives are of inestimable value to God, then we can trust him for everything. We can have a deep sense of confidence and peace. Thirdly, we're meant to be the tangible means by which God's faithfulness and care is shown to each other. Of course God ministers to us personally, but he's called us to live together in this community of people with the express purpose of us being his heart and his hands to each other. More of this next week. Finally, no matter what happens to us, God will have the last word. We will be seen to be super conquerors because not even death itself can separate us from God's love. Death is the one thing that we can all be sure of. But for Paul, death only gives rise to the fullness of God's salvation, present with Christ, resurrection of our bodies. There may be salvation from evil in the present, but salvation from evil after death is a certainty, according to Paul. That's when the faithfulness of God is brought to its final conclusion. And so Paul encourages us, no matter what we're facing, to have a sense of God's love, to trust him completely, and to know that the end of the matter is secure in God's hands. This is the story of God that Paul tells for us in Romans. It's a story that can transform our lives. It's a story that can transform the life of our world. Today, increasing technology, consumerism, and social disintegration are producing levels of individualism and isolation that's probably never been seen before in the world. All of which means that many people are really struggling really struggling to find meaning and a sense of worth and real love. What could a message of a God who cares deeply, who loves extravagantly and personally, and who is utterly, utterly faithful, what could such a message mean if properly expressed and, more importantly, demonstrated by us? Especially when any picture that people have of God is likely to be either somebody who's far removed from the world of which we're a part, or a severe judgmental killjoy. Sadly, God gets a bad rap, as they say in the movies. And saddest of all, it's usually his people who are responsible. Contrary to this, as David Livingstone's favourite theologian, Terry Eagleton, puts it, God is not patriarch, accuser, nor superego, but lover, friend, fellow accused, and counsel for the defence. This is the story of God that we find in Romans, a story of a God who's faithful, whose love holds us so strongly that nothing can ever sever us from it. It's a story that can transform our lives. It's a story that can transform the world. And the challenge to us this morning is to believe it, to allow it to percolate into every moment of our lives as we go forward into this week, And together, to find joyful, innovative, serving ways to demonstrate it to a world that desperately needs to find the reality of God's love and faithfulness. God is faithful. May God's Spirit implant in us afresh a sense of his deep, deep love for each one of us. And may we have the courage to demonstrate it to a waiting world. Amen.